Welcome to the Run Strong podcast. Welcome, Rob Jones. Good afternoon, Tom Walker. Afternoon. You're in the gym. I'm in the gym. With a handheld mic. I'm home with my new boom arm. You're standing up as well. You have a standing desk. Standing up, mate, on one leg, loading up the tendon on my airphone pad. Yeah, and I can see behind you, I can see your whiteboard with some percentages for, it looks like, power percentages, correct? Correct. Yeah. Power percentages. It's almost well like spotted. I know. It's almost like I know this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Mate, uh, you've, you've been guest hunting again. Yes. Tell us what you've caught. Oh, what a guest. So this guest is not so much about running, but he, his name is Rob Mads Anderson. And some of the stuff he's done is a little bit mad. He is an expedition leader. He's done the seven continents. He's been to Everest multiple times. He is the author of four books, Seven Summits the Solo to Everest via Antarctica, um, Flying to the North Pole in a Russian biplane. Um, He has multiple sponsors, including Rolex, North Face. Um, It just just an interesting guy that I thought we should get on and chat to. I'm really, really excited. And he actually, I didn't go hunting. He got pushed to me by one of our endurance athletes, uh, Lucy, who works with Matt. So she must take some responsibility for this and some credit. All, all hunters have good strategies, mate. It's okay. <laughs> good. Let's get to it then. We are now, we will speak to Robert Mads Anderson. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to have you on. Where are you at the moment? I'm very much here in very warm Dubai. Ah, could have come in for a coffee then. What are we doing on Zoom? <laughs> it's, our, it's our hectic sh- schedules and calendars that we can't seem to line up. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, Rob, for listeners who don't know you, Rob's already done an intro, which uh, you'll hear when this comes out. You'll, you'll see how much he bigs you up. But why don't okay. you tell us a little bit about yourself and, yeah, what do you do? Okay. Um, I'm kind of a climber, a writer, and now a paraglider. And then since I landed in Dubai, I'm a triathlete as well, because that seems to be the most fun can be had out here. So I kind of mix and match depending on the environment and the circumstances. And as COVID kind of lets up, I'll go back to mountain guiding. I worked in advertising for a long time with a corporate career spread around the world, but I much prefer guiding people up big mountains. It's a lot more fun. So I do that kind of spring and fall, occasionally do a Himalayan trip, um, and then also go to Antarctica in northern winter, summer, summer. So December, January every year. Okay. And how do you get, tell us a bit more about your background, because what you've just described is probably, I don't know, 90% of people out there dream jobs. How did you get there? I think I started out, the climbing and the writing part started at about the same time. So I started, I grew up in Colorado, so proximity to some very good rocks and a lot of people who were climbing at a high standard. So that certainly helped my climbing abilities. I started writing about the same time and I combined that and found that with some photography, you could get published quite easily. So I published quite a few articles early on. And then as part of my 
other side, my advertising career, I traveled around the world and lived in New Zealand for quite a while and had the chance to meet Sir Edmund Hillary, who was the first man to climb Everest. So I developed a really good relationship with him and he was very helpful in both kind of how to put teams together, lead teams, but also assisted me, um, you know, with the public relations and things. I remember once I called him and said, can you come down and do this with me? I was living in Auckland, New Zealand. And he said, oh, Robert, I don't know. And I said, come on, Ed, it's just for a little while. And if you don't come, nobody's going to be there because they're not going to come and see Robert Anderson. And he was like, that's a pretty straight answer. When will you pick me up? So he was quite helpful, you know, and, you know, that would bring in the press and then bring in the sponsors and help us out. So I formed our relationship. So I had some great people that I got to know early on with both him and also the Tenzing family and have carried on those relationships with the sons of the two guys who first climbed Everest. And then the advertising really allowed me to basically fund these. And I worked up through my career quite quickly and owned several companies and had those and through a mixture of M&As and selling them off, would take a break and go climbing for quite a while. So it was very varied. And I don't say it was in, is it, there was no master plan ever. There was just a, it's a good time to write ads and do that and make some money. And the next thing it was like, it's definitely a good time to go climbing. The opportunities are too good to turn down. So I better quit this and take up the next thing. Your, your climbing, if you like, CV is nothing short of stunning. So you've got, I was just having a look at your website there. You've got El Capitan. You've got the Half Dome. You, you have the Seven Summits solo apart from Everest. I think Everest you've done multiple, multiple times. Um, you've been to the Antarctic you have seven ascents of the Vincent and Antarctica and two unrepeated solo climbs as well. How, how do you even begin to start something like that? Because for quite a lot of people, Everest is a, is a bucket list thing and it's, they take years out of preparation or years of preparation to do it. How can you achieve all that so quickly? Um, I think I was fortunate as I started on Everest quite a long time ago, and I just got invited um, due to kind of my climbing resume at the time. I'd been out and like, I'd already climbed, not that it has any relevance to Everest, but I'd done El Cap and some of the people on the trip were big Yosemite climbers um, and got invited there. And I just found that it, it worked. I just performed really well at altitude. And I think some people, it's the first time almost you get people and we've introduced a few friends to triathlons. And the first time they go out, and they're not on the podium exactly, but you look at them and you watch them and you think, wow, they have a real skill set. They have a knack for this and they're good at it. And they realize it and you encourage them and off they go. And I found out with climbing that I had a sense of, of balance and doing the right training that I could get up these things quite quickly. So I just kept on from there. And the other side of it is simply financial resources. Fortunately, I had an advertising career that I'd done very, very well at. and within the companies that I had, I was able to, to, to either take time off or to um, sell something or quit or whatever at an advantageous time and go off and go climbing. And, and that the advertising background also allowed me to get some sponsors. So I've had a relationship that goes back, you know, over 30 years with Rolex watch. Mm -hmm. um, when I did the seven summits, I was sponsored by British Airways, which obviously got me to most of the mountains and a whole bunch of talks and, ran a few marathons as well. They were pretty free with their, their tickets to get me where I wanted to go to train or to speak or to climb. So it was that balance, which really, really helped me out. And I had that, the chance to leverage those kind of skill sets that I had. Yeah. 
So you well, say- I have so many, so many directions we could go in this. I know uh, Rob Jones is, is thinking the same as me. I've got so many questions written. So down. many questions. Where I just want to pull you back to the present right now, where we're seeing um, for the past three years, probably four years, climbing is getting quite a bigger spotlight put onto it. Do you, as a climber in the climbing world, do you see that happening at the moment? And what kind of byproducts, if you like, are happening because of it within the climbing world? Because obviously being a running podcast, we're probably not so up to date with with what's going on. But like, I don't, I couldn't tell you where El Capitan is, but I've heard of it and you mentioned it there. And it just made me think, like, what else is being mentioned in the climbing world that probably was more of a, a passion when you were doing it? you sort of feeling it for passion and now that climbing is is have a spotlight on it is there you know is there a crowd who are more okay we're passionate people we've been doing this forever and then the new crowd who are like we're trying to get into climbing but the the locals aren't letting us in is there any of that going on or do you see it as climbing's got a spotlight and it's better for for all of it yeah i think the latter i think it's got more of a spotlight on it now and the movie that really popularized el cap was free solo yeah, and that's it. The man went and climbed it without a rope. And it's just phenomenal. It won an Oscar for best documentary. It's just an amazing movie. Um, and the skill sets there that Alex Honnold had are very different from what you might find at an L Cap climber. So there's a real um, diversity of you get people who just go to climbing wells like Mountain Extreme here in Dubai, and we climb there because it's too hot to go outside. <laughs> So, and you get people that within that, even the sport climbing walls, they might just boulder, which means they climb without ropes. They're never more than about five meters off the ground. Um, And then you get people doing um, top roping and lead climbing. And within those skill sets, then of course, different ways of training and different nutrition plans, different ways you want to build your muscles up and things that. And then you go up to the more traditional, the bigger rocks. And then you go up to the really big ones like El Capitan, and then sometimes you move into mountain climbing and a lot of people will never move into mountain climbing because it's cold. There's quite a lot of misery and the altitude is not a lot of fun, but the views and the experience, there's, there's nothing really like it. So I'd say it's definitely, it's growing. There is a spotlight on it. And part of it is the ability of people for the first time with drones, with very long camera lenses, um, with the advent of climbing walls. So anybody can really go out and try it and say, oh, I, you know, I, when I move from the horizontal to the vertical environment, I love it. And again, some people love it. And some people are like three feet off the ground. They're like, nah, this isn't for me. I'm, I'm going to stick to the track or whatever they want to do. So yeah, there's definitely a spotlight on it now and a lot more interest, I'd say. So it's a good, it's a good thing in your eyes that more people are exposed to climbing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's great because it's a great activity. Um, it's great to see more kids involved at a younger age and have access to it. Um, it's great to get out in nature and do things. And I think if you, if you're climbing with a group, it's amazing kind of team building. It builds an incredible amount of self-confidence. The other thing about climbers, which is maybe I'm not sure, I don't know enough triathletes that well yet, but climbing originally was more of a counterculture sport. It was for the people who, we're kind of misfits or whatever. There's always the stories of these famous alpinists who could barely get through school or did so well at school that they dropped out early because they were too smart and got bored or whatever. And then they took up climbing and they found that's what they really excelled at. So it's a place, particularly for kids, sometimes you'll see the shyest 
most reticent child or woman just like suddenly kind of spring to life and they have a sense of confidence on the wall that they wouldn't get anywhere else. So it's always quite magic to see that. And in a group of 20 kids, you'll have two or three that just absolutely shine. And that's, that's exciting. When I think about climbing, I think, or the birth of climbing is very much like the birth of surfing. And it was almost a, a culture of really hardcore do or die climbers that would sleep in vans that evade the law, try to climb their rock and they wouldn't wash, you know, and it's, it's, it's very similar to how surfing was, you know, grew up. Everyone's just walking around barefoot with their shirts off. But now obviously that's with the, with the birth of technology and everyone's trying to outdo each other. And, it, you know, like you say, drones and footage and films and sponsors, it's all just it's the Olympics. So yeah, it's become so professional yeah. now. And you're seeing a, a huge influx of, let's say, the everyday man or modern day man wanting to join you on expeditions and trips. Just how difficult is it to attempt some of these summits? Because we can see it on Netflix and it's very hard to convey just how hard it is. Yeah. Um, it's got particularly the one that gets the most press and is probably the most talked about is Everest. Mm. And it's certainly some people will say, oh, it's easy and you can be dragged to the top. It's definitely not easy. You could die. And I think I did the numbers on it once. And if the number of people who run the New York Marathon, if the same percentage of people died doing that is climbing Everest every year, it'd be like 50 people. <laughs> and people would not accept that in a marathon. But on Everest, yeah. it's like, well, there'll be five to 10 people that die every season. And so the whole danger and difficulty level is, is really quite different. So you have to be willing to accept that, which is quite different from as much as some of the bike run rides around here. If you go down the hills of Corfacan in a triathlon, it can be a bit frightening, but you're probably, hopefully you're unlikely to kill yourself on those corners, although you might, who knows. Um, so there's a whole level of danger and difficulty, which you have to accept. And I do a talk called uh, Fear, Fitness, and Faith. And the fear part is you have to go through the Kumbu Icefall at the start. And you get there and you think, there's a lot of, am I fit enough? How am I feeling? Will I go as fast as everybody else? Can I get up at two in the morning and climb? And then you get up there and you realize I'm here and, oh my God, it's a magnificent place and I'm not doing too bad. And then you go down the next day, you come up and the trail is a completely different way. And you think, what happened? Well, everything fell down overnight. And if you would have been there, you wouldn't be here anymore. And it's, are you willing to accept that? Can you get over the fear? Then the fitness part comes up when you're up over six, six and a half thousand meters and you have to go up a big ice, ice wall called the Lodze Face. And, you know, then you really find out, am I fit? Because you start out and you're feeling kind of fit and the weather's good and it's nice and cool in the morning. Maybe you're on oxygen for the first time, but then you go up 500 meters and a storm comes in and it starts to snow and the avalanche potential increases and people are turning around and going down. And you're like, oh, so there, there's a lot of, other factors that kind of come into play on the on the different mountains as you go out there you've just started or maybe not just started but you've just started getting the triathlon you've been running a little bit before that where do you see the crossovers of climbing and let's just call it uh, endurance sport where do you see the the biggest crossovers for you um one is a pure personal one is i love the start of the triathlons here with the music playing and you're all down on the beach and you don't have to worry about the water being cold. And there's this <laughs> sense of unrealistic, almost expectation of what it's like to start those things. It's great fun. You know, everybody's out there. It's a crazy time in the morning. 
everybody's ready to go. And you get that sense before a climb too. So there's definitely the kind of the anticipation to build up the enjoyment, which is a, which is a crossover. As far as training, I've certainly found triathlons the best way to train for climbing because just the multi-disciplines, um, the combination of, you know, the all over swimming, the good long endurance you get out of the biking, um, the running obviously crosses over, particularly if you're doing hills really well. So a lot of similarities there as you kind of look through the training aspects. Psychologically, the thing that you can never take out of climbing is it's dangerous, particularly as you go higher and you can't stop. You know, there's times where you don't want to stop and try certainly, but if you really have to, or it gets too hard eventually, okay, I'm going to walk a little bit, <laughs> only this far, and then I'm going to start running again. But in climbing, you can't do that because you're not down yet. So you can't basically stop. You have to keep going no matter what. And sometimes that can go on for days. So that's a real differentiator kind of across the different, different areas there. What about the discipline of training? Do climbers train? I mean, I'm sure they do, but you've obviously seen the runner's lifestyle or triathlete's lifestyle and, and climber's lifestyle. Talking about what Rob said about them being maybe a little bit more misfits, you know, sleeping out of the van, that kind of laid back culture. Is it, do you see that like runners are more disciplined? Could climbers learn more from runners and triathletes in terms of their training discipline? Or do you think climbers train the way they train because of their minds and that's what makes them good climbers? I think that's a great question. I think climbing traditionally, there wasn't a lot of training. They were just climbing. And like you say, they were misfits, you know, to go back to what we were talking about earlier in your perception of climbers. I think certainly now there's been some climbers and there was an American climber named Steve House who started doing more training programs and wrote a book called Training for Alpinism. And that became very popular and people, you know, became a lot more dedicated and certain about what they could do within their training programs, certainly not to the level that you see with something like what the Norwegians are doing now. Like maybe you guys watched the thing yesterday and it's just the amount of technology that's evident, the training, the nutrition, the teamwork that they put together for something like that. Climbing is really nowhere near that, I don't think yet. But as you mentioned earlier with the Olympics, that's gonna foster a whole nother level of training again. For some of these sports which is going to come out and transfer over into mountain climbing in general mm. How what are we going to see sorry rob i was saying what are we what are we going to see like climbing power meters like what what more technology <laughs> could they could could you have like I, I don't know what the kpis for for a climber would be to be honest well there's an interesting one that's being experimented with now where you put a, a pulse oximeter on your finger or wherever it might be. So you can you know, read your oxygen levels in your blood and that could feed through to your oxygen regulation kind of system on your back and then dial up or dial down based on your level of exertion, how much oxygen it's feeding you. That's Which awesome. is certainly a much more technological way than when we were first there, we put on basically, they weren't basically, they were MIG airplane masks from the Russians because the systems were designed by the Russians. We put on, MIG jet fighter masks, tag it into like a five kilo cylinder of oxygen and off we go. Um, whereas nowadays the cylinders are down to a kilo and a half say, and you're using specialized masks. And then if you tie that into your physiology and where you're tracking with your pulse oximeter, it's pretty, pretty good technology. It's getting there. <laughs> That's it. 
<laughs> so I suppose like the, the evolution of carbon shoes is just across all sports, but just in different levels and different aspects. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And we've seen that across a lot of the equipment, you know, mm. and the last time I guided on Everest, I realized at the end, sadly, I had not taken my ice axe off my pack because there's a rope most of the way. And if there isn't a rope, it's relatively gentle terrain. So you're using a ski pole mm -hmm. and my, you know, the, the next time I went, I went back with a carbon fiber ice axe, which was almost strong enough, but it was certainly a lot lighter. <laughs> if I just had to carry it around for the pictures, well, I didn't want to carry anything extra. For, for something like all your mountaineering expeditions, obviously the training is a big element and you've got, well, for want of a better word, you've got balls of steel, but how much of it do you, do you train mentally? Obviously, the, yeah, there's the physical element and stuff, but do you do visualization? Do you do, do you plan the route in your head? What, do you do anything like that? I think, yes, definitely a lot of that. And that particularly comes into play when I'm doing new routes. Mm -hmm. because if you're looking up at more or less a blank canvas, it's much more like artistry and how you get up the peak. I did a route with a couple of other climbers, but all of them had a lot of, a lot of experience doing first descents. And we put up a new route on the east side of Everest, so about a three and a half thousand meter face. We did it without oxygen and we didn't take Sherpas to carry our loads or anything. So in putting that together, not only the visualization as imagining ourselves up there, but the visualization to, are we going to actually be able to accomplish what nobody else has done before and get up there was very, very important. And then I think the fitness and kind of how you feel about yourself on the mountains, it drives the confidence. Mm. And so if you're fitter, in one of your earlier podcasts, it was very interesting. They said, you know, if you're fitter, and you're stronger, you're also able to be mentally more alert. And being mentally alert to any level at altitude is a challenge the best of times. So if you go in with a strong fitness plan and you feel confident physically, it's going to drive your mental abilities to pick the right way, to choose the right techniques, to use the tools you need to continue to carry on. So it's, it's very strongly linked together. Okay. And do you, do you then use that, those techniques over into triathlon now as well? I, the visualization, definitely. Um, the nice thing about triathlons is the course is hopefully really pretty well set unless the boys mm -hmm. float away, which seems to be the case sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> that makes it a little bit more exciting. Um, and I actually did one try in Malaysia that was really incredibly frightening with probably almost two meter swells. And I just could not believe we were still running it. And at the end of the race, very sadly, we found out that two people would drown. It was, oh my goodness. It was horrific. Um, but using what I've learned from climbing, um, I'd say that the most important part is not necessarily the physical training, but the mental ability to know I can keep going a lot further than I think I could otherwise. And that I have to keep moving. At the same time, there's an interesting one. My wife just mentioned, I was talking to her earlier today, and we did one in Corfacan, and somebody crashed. A car pulled across them, they crashed. And of all the people that were there, kind of sadly, I was the only one that seemed to stop to help this guy. And he was badly hurt. You know, you could hear the carbon fiber in the car, and he hit it going probably 40K. Um, and that was more of a guide mentality that you look after people. Yeah. And so that had certainly carried over, and he was very, very kind to me. And, uh, you know, racing, he was good and sponsored me for a few more uh, triathlons just to keep me going. But it was interesting that the team mentality that I had from climbing 
of you must first look after your team. It wasn't really a triathlete thing because it's such an individualistic sport. It's like, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. So yeah, the, the things definitely cross over some. Another word you have in, in terms of what, what you speak around, Rob, is uh, strategy. And that's a really interesting word to me. I can understand it a little bit is within climbing, but how would you explain strategy and, and how do you lecture on it? What's your key points with it? I think what I'm doing, I, I, I do all my talks very much based on, you know, what the theme is and what companies need or where they think there's gaps or a lot of time it's on, it's on change management because so much is, even before COVID, it was changing and then it changed completely. And it is how do you embrace that and how do you embrace the difficulties and the challenges as opposed to say, make excuses. I did an, I did an interesting article, well, I thought it was anyway, um, on my blog. And it kind of compared two superstar kind of American football players who were like Super Bowl winners and those kind of things with a climber who I know really well, who's a guide. And the thing that I'd seen within the American football players was, which I'm not really a fan of that sport, but we happen to be on TV shoots with them. So was they immediately moved past, this is a challenge, this is a problem. How did you face this to the solution? They were almost as soon as there was, there was a problem that was stated or a challenge they'd have in their life. And we talked to them in, uh, you know, kind of in their garages, in their own homes where we were shooting because it was kind of a homegrown commercial for Dove Soap. And um, they had this ability to move past the, I've had a flat tire. It's not a good day. I woke up with a stomach ache. Why did I drink that, you know, thing when I shouldn't have to like, how do I solve this? How do I solve this? How do I solve this? And I saw the same within this guide on Everest who had a really successful year last year during COVID when everybody else was kind of failing. And I sent him some emails back and forth without telling him what I was doing. And his approach was so similar. It was like in lockstep with, you know, not making excuses, not looking for people to talk to who basically are deciding you can't do it or you won't do it and surrounding yourself with positivity and also just moving, moving forward, you know, at a rapid rate of speed all the time. What was his, what, what did he say helped him to do that? Did he, was he aware that he was doing that? What were his traits? I think the traits, some of it, and I saw this in the football players too, they were almost subconscious. It was, they'd just gotten so used to doing things. And one, another guy that we, we uh, shot with was a guy, a very famous basketball player called Shaq O'Neal. And he did the same thing, basketball, which happens so fast. Um, and he was a very big guy, you know, and he was almost large for a basketball player. And early on, as you know, people used to tease him to say, it's like, you're not going to be able to do this because you're so uncoordinated. And so he worked on that, you know, he worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. He just wouldn't take that. It was just kind of innate as opposed to things that you could probably train for. It's just like, it's more about just looking forward. You know, it's like, I've done that. In one of, one of your podcasts, people talked about kind of thoughts, feelings, and emotions and how it, one drives the other. And it's like, how do you move from, oh, I don't feel so good about this to this is the way I feel about it to the visual, visualization that says I'm going to be successful at this. Do you, do you think that could come from a top-down model? So if you're, if you're a leader or if you're a cli your climb guide or your triathlon coach is emulating those traits that you will then take them on? 
or do you feel that you need to actively work on them as individuals and sometimes it'll take and sometimes it won't? I think a bit of both, but I think with the right coach, um, you can do phenomenal things, you know, and you guys, you've ridden with Lucy, right? Yes. To, to be personal about it. When I first rode with her, you know, we were 5k into the El Cadre and she's like, oh, maybe, maybe it's a bit further. I'll give her a bit more credit. We'll give her seven. She's like, I'm tired. I'm turning around. Right. And, you know, under a year, she's doing the 70.3 in Dubai. But it was interesting because I watched her ride and I used to bike race way back in university. And I looked at her cadence and she had one of the smoothest, fastest, like efficient cadence I'd ever seen on a Trek rental bike. Right. And I thought, wow, if you can get that moving and you have, obviously. But so I think coaching can be phenomenal in order to give people the enthusiasm, move them forward, give them the right guidelines, but also work with them, you know, within their mental space, you know, to, you know, you're feeling like this, maybe you should take a day off or maybe you should go a bit easier as opposed to doing that. So it can definitely be assisted by coaching. And then every individual needs to take their own responsibility for themselves and their training, I think. Get up, get out of bed, go. Bob, you've obviously worked with um, with a few climbers in your time with your with your background and things. Would you say you've been a coach to any of them? Um, definitely, but interesting. There was there was one I had who was very talented. He was a double Olympic gold medalist in rowing from the UK, and I hated sitting next to him. I told him you cannot wear shorts into the dining tent because his thighs were like, you know. <laughs> They were bigger than my trunk and they were all muscle. I mean, it's depressing to sit next to you. And, <laughs> you know, he was there. We were on another mountain and he was going to Everest the next season. And he, we were on a mountain called Chuyu, which is the sixth highest mountain in the world, which people usually use for training a bit. And, you know, he said, you know, he was all, he told me about his schedule and the, what he did for Olympics, which was just, you know, you guys would know, it just completely blows your mind. You live, sleep, eat and breathe training. You know, it was crazy. And, um, and so I sat with him and stuff and he's like, you know, he wanted to know what training you could do. And I'd watched him climb and I'd been with him and stuff like that. And I said, basically, dude, you got to mellow out because when you get to Everest base camp, you're going to be on and then you're going to be off. And then you're going to be on and it's going to be two o'clock tomorrow morning and you're going to have to get up and you're going to have to climb up the mountain for five hours nonstop. And then you're going to have to stop and camp. And then you wake up at two in the morning and then it snowed two feet and then you can't go. And then you go back to bed. And then you do it again the next day. And the following day, you're going to go, but you're waiting for some equipment from down the valley and the yaks are delayed. I said, so all this, this segmented trying to put things in boxes training is not working for you. I said, you got to let this stuff go and you got to sit back. You got to read a book. You got to relax. And when he got back, he said, that was the most important thing I learned, how to relax, how to not train, because he was just like so incredibly fit that he needed to be like detuned. <laughs> it's like you're way too, you're way too too fit for this you're way too well trained but mentally he was not in the right space he was trying to control what he needed to do and he couldn't do that on Everest I like how you didn't name drop there but could you please name him uh Steve Williams <laughs> okay you know him no I thought it was it quite a while ago but yeah it was and he's been four. inspired by another guy the, the guy that I did Everest with he was the first British climber to get up Everest without oxygen and he became quite well known and this uh, friend of mine, Steve Williams, he'd been to a lecture that Stephen Venables had given. 
at some point and talked about our climb. And I said, oh, once you <clears> realized that was this kind of original motivation was a climb that I'd done with a British climber ages ago. And now he'd gone back and uh, Brilliant. climbed with and me. On the, on the flip side of that then, working with climbers, as, as we talked about earlier, traditionally more laid back, traditionally, you know, wouldn't look at training as training. They just want to want to climb on their own schedule as, as and when they choose to. How do you how do you get those guys to fall in line on a on a serious project like taking on an Everest or you know one of the one of the mountains that go above eight thousand meters? Um, partly, I look at and this isn't a direct answer, but partly I look at what their motivations are for climbing and why why are they doing it? And I think we need to look at that no matter what we're doing, whether it be a triathlon or going for a run this afternoon or whatever. You know, why are you doing it? You look at that and once you kind of understand that if, you know, some people are doing it because, you know, they want to do it. Some people are doing it because they have heard a lot about it. Some people are doing it because they want to tell other people they did it, you know, a bit of the Ironman syndrome, right? I'm going to do this. So when I'm done, I'm finished. And then I will just tattoo myself and I'll be done. <laughs> right. <laughs> you get that. That's, that's the, that's the Ironman equivalent of Everest, right? Yeah. I'm finished. Right. Don't want to look at a mountain again. Um, so motivating those different sets of people is, is very, very different, but sometimes it's a mix of, I'm sure you guys have found it. It's the, you really need to do this and you work with things they like and what they can do. But at the same time, you're like, if you don't do this, you're going to be in trouble. Basically, you've really got to get out there and do this. Um, or there's a chance you're not going to make it. Or the other factor, of course, in climbing is as a guide, the thing I just never, never like it, never kind of, you don't just don't break any rules around the safety aspect of things. If I think in some way that somebody is evil at either, you know, endangering themselves or endangering the team or another guide, it's like, that's it. So if you kind of let people know in advance what they're doing, it helps. How do you, how would you filter someone being ready because obviously if you take someone on an expedition you've got loads of different you might have a different people or a different group of people that have never met before they all want to achieve the same goal but they're going to be from different backgrounds different experience and you ultimately are in charge and are responsible for the safety of everybody everyone ultimately wants to succeed and might go beyond their limitations to succeed mm -hmm. how do you how do you filter that out um, that's, it's a bit hard to put into words because part of it's just experience. Mm -hmm. And I used to claim that I could watch people walk across the street and step over the curb and know whether they can climb Everest or not, because a lot of it is a, is a second sense or an intuition about your kind of connection to the earth and how people move across it and how comfortable they are. I mentioned the one guy that I did Everest with the British guy. And the first time I met him, I flew him over to New York. We had a meeting, but I, could, I watched him walk through the reception area in JFK airport and down to see me. And I thought, wow, he's perfect. And that, that intuition was, it was right, you know, the whole time. So it's, you know, sometimes it's just that intuition. Other times it's, like I said, it's how people move and how their, their body's connected to the earth. Um, it's also how they talk about things mm. and the way that they articulate what they want to do or how they're going to do it. You know, and whether they talk about the training in a, in a heroic, I've done this sense, 
or whether they talk about it in an I want to do that sense or whether they talk about it in a I'm going to beat them sense. And you see the same in triathlons, you know, the way people verbalize different things and then work out their motivations to kind of to keep them moving. So quite quite a few different ways. It was a very rambling answer to, to that, but it's uh, it's kind of difficult to to know how they can. And sometimes occasionally people think they can do it and they can't. And if they're dangerous, they're just, they got to go down. Mm -hmm. I try to make it work so that they can watch themselves climb in some way and, or pair them up with people and they'll realize this isn't for me. You know, it's really not the thing I need to be doing because it's dangerous or I'm just disadvantaging the team in some way. And they make the decision to go down. That's kind of obvious. I want to ask you a couple more things. One is around your success of of yourself as an author and and well, I think a, a journalist within the within the sport. How do you go about scheduling yourself from a, a day to day um, point of view into a long longer term point of view? So, like when you get an idea or someone approaches you with with a challenge, how are you putting together your schedule to make sure that that gets done and how are you well how do you prioritize your projects so that they work out over a, a longer period of time yeah i think i've always and this is where being in business for years and managing teams of people and things really helps is i just you know i make lists and i have kind of i've tried to to put them on computers or turn them into notes or something it's never happened it's like so i got big projects you know upper left and i've got fast communications, lower right. And then I've got, because once or twice I gave people things to do and it didn't happen. I've got kind of maybe managers or reports that are coming in to get things done. So it's relatively systematic. And I think the training and the time to do yoga and the other things need to be fit in there exactly the same way. Um, and then the other thing over time is certainly a business background helps more than anything else, I think, because you have a lot going on, particularly these days in different media happening. And like you say, the difference between writing a tweet versus writing a, a blog versus writing a book is monumental. Um, the advantage with that is I've always enjoyed writing. So the whole idea of writer's block or something, maybe I won't know what I want to say quite right. And I've got one now that started out in one direction called like, is Everest too easy? which I think is kind of interesting this year because the weather's been perfect and a lot of people got up quite easy. And then I started talking about how people climbed it fast and then how people climbed it with lots of support, but then it didn't ladder back up to the headline. So that blog post died Monday and hopefully it'll come back, you know, <laughs> next Monday. Um, so you got to be willing to kind of chop and change and kill things. And, and then some of it is just feeling. It's like, if I really have an enthusiasm to do something, I will try to do it right then. And the more things I can do without putting on my list at all, you know, it used to be if somebody came into my office and had a problem, if I could stand right there, sort it and get rid of it without having to think about it, that was like the ultimate way to address things. And you didn't get it right all the time, but at least it kept things moving. You'd find out whether you'd made the right decision or not. When is your creative brain at its worst? At its worst. It's when it's not a time of day, it's when I'm not motivated and don't have things happening. Or I don't have things happening that I'm looking forward to, you know, like we all do sometimes. So, you know, if I'm motivated, 
I can get up and take notes for a blog post or something at three in the morning. I'll wake up and think, oh, but I might forget that. And I'll take notes on my phone. And then a lot of times now, just due to my schedule, my wife's a teacher. So she gets up and goes to work super early. And sometimes I can get everything done in a whole article written by like 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> it's incredible. So it's more about, I'm better off when I'm doing more and I have more to look forward to and more scheduled. And then I can work things in and do stuff. If I'm kind of at a lull or I'm not getting as much done or I'm not training the way I should, then it's, everything gets difficult. <laughs> you know, it all gets hard then. Does, does that parallel over to your, to your running and triathlon training? Is you need a race in the diary to be, to be up and training or is it uh, a staple I of your day? It, I wish it wasn't, but it is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> like to think but I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, I think we need to play to our strengths and yeah. I, I like to ask people like yourself those questions because a lot of people think, oh, it's just not the way my brain works. I'm not a creative person or, you know, I'm annoyed at myself because I should be getting up and training every day, no matter what. I shouldn't need a big goal, a big goal to be scared of. But I think human nature shows us that it, you do. Like, it's just the way, it's the way we work. We, as, a, as a species, we seem to work so much better when we're under a little bit of pressure. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's why coaching is important. You know, because it gives you, oh, I should be doing this. And then you can choose to do it or not do it. But if you choose to not do it, it's a, <laughs> there's a negative outcome versus a positive outcome usually. So it kind of gets, gets you moving and it gives you a plan in between the races. I think we did not a lot, but I think we did six triathlons this year. And after the last one, we've had certain things we've been trying to do and accomplish, but it's been kind of da-da, da-da, da-da. <laughs> in terms of training and it's you know you can easily oh it's getting hotter and the sea is warming up and now is too warm but it's like nah if i had a triathlon you know if i was going to europe for a northern triathlon you know i'd be doing double loops out at alcadra every weekend would would you say that you get the same joy from triathlon as you do from climbing skiing or paragliding or any of the extreme sports that you do um, it's different. I think I really, I like the fact, particularly during COVID and stuff, it was certainly, I think it was probably the funnest thing we were doing. Um, and, and they're very different. You know, I do a lot of them with different people. You know, we race with Lucy, I race with my wife and we're quite competitive against each other as well. Um, so that helps both the training and the racing. But the kind of sense you get out of it is it's quite different in the enjoyment you get from different things. Yeah. You know, I really, I think my first love of has to be one now is probably paragliding just because it has, it embodies all the things of needing to be fit, needing to be mentally attuned, taking off. Obviously the danger is a factor. You got to get it right. Um, and a lot of times you do it in the mountains. So that's incredible, but I'm not doing that every day. And there's just a great community here of people that I would hate to think, you know, I would, would have spent all this time in Dubai without having done a whole slew of triathlons. So, yeah. We should, get you, out running. We should get you running in the mountains with us one day. Yeah. I love that. We do a lot of trail running here, actually. That's the other thing that's so exciting about the UAE, which is completely unexpected. You know, you hear about malls and brunches. Um, yeah. Been to a few of both of those, but it's, the amount of the mountains, and we did a whole, we did two, over two weeks walking across Oman, which is basically an extension of the Hagra Mountains out here. And we did two weeks nonstop and it was absolutely brutal. Yeah. Um, but it was a phenomenal experience. And 
the rock climbing, the mountains here, the trails, the wadis. You know, if I just getting up to the top of the tallest peak in Dubai, which is way out in Hatta, which is part of Dubai, which a lot of people don't know, Um al Nusur is absolutely brutal. It's like a 24, 25K round trip wadi hike, complete with snakes, you know, <laughs> crazy frogs, wild pools, and some kind of desperate rock scrambling. It's amazing. <laughs> You'd love some of the situations we get caught up in. We actually probably need you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> We've got yeah. to do with hiring you, I think. We, we uh, definitely wouldn't pass our safety. Uh... Yeah. And the stairway to heaven hike here that goes up, there's a big circle. You know, you can go up the left side or the yeah. right side. If you go up the right side, it's a stair. And if you go up the left side, you know, it was built like goat herders a million years ago. And mm. it goes up those stairs, which are just like the scariest can be. But it's a phenomenal day out. It's really incredible. Yes. You know? Excellent. Robert, there's definitely two books I'm going to be ordering from you. The uh, the one about the planes over the Arctic, Antonov's over over the Arctic. Oh, good! Incredibly interesting. And then your latest book, Nine Lives, um, because it says it starts with you nearly getting killed on your first expedition. So I definitely want to have a read about that because obviously that didn't happen. But I want to know how that how that uh, affected you and maybe it makes you live makes you live your life these days. Yeah, that's a, well, I'm quite fond of that one, actually, Nine Lives. Um, <laughs> a friend of mine was saying, sure. I was going there for like, it was my eighth time, I was going there for nine. He goes, Robert, you better be careful. You know, you might've used up your nine lives. And after I went that time and made it at the top, I was like, that's cool. And Antonov's over the Arctic was flying over the North Pole, you know, in a kind of biplane made in Russia in 1947 is... <laughs> It's pretty good fun. It's a great It's picture. amazing. Well, yeah. Um, and we can get those on Amazon? Yeah, you can find those on Amazon. Yeah, they're all great. there. In my full name, Robert Mads Anderson. If you Google that, you find some things which are true and a host of things which probably aren't true, like everybody. Um, but yeah, Robert Mads Anderson at Amazon. And then, yeah, Nine Lives Expeditions to Everest. Um, and the other one, the other one is the, the uh, Nine Lives is in French, too. So it's going quite well. I launched it in Chamonix last fall and that's, that's done amazingly well. It's really good. Awesome. Good. And we hope you will come join us at some of our run sessions or bike sessions or swim sessions in the future here in Dubai. That'd be great. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll get you to some of those. So I think, you know, people with your kind of mentality and people are going to hear this obviously with, with the podcast, but your mentality is contagious and obviously you you must know the power of it but we'd love to have someone like you within our community as well so thank you very much for coming on and hopefully we'll meet you soon in person great yeah it was a real pleasure thanks very much thank you thanks mate when are we signing up for everest i keep i kept googling it <laughs> I, but I, I don't know now. Is it too easy? He was saying he's writing a blog post. Is it too easy? We don't want to too do it. If, it's, if it's too easy, we don't want to do it. I want to read the one that says it's too cheap. Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely not cheap. I know that for a fact. Yeah, that would be a that would be a hell of a thing to do. But hopefully, we'll we'll get Rob into our network, and then yeah, we'll get ourselves over there somehow. Yeah, I'm not sure Hoka are going to sponsor that one. They might. They might. Carbons <laughs> up Everest. First carbon <laughs> shoe up Everest. But in spikes. Exactly. Yeah. The new uh, the new tecton, the new carbon trail shoe. <laughs> Good work. Yeah. Doing it on gels. 
The gels are quite yeah. heavy. You wouldn't want to carry those up to the top of Everest. They might actually They'd freeze, freeze, wouldn't they? Yeah. yeah, they might freeze. It'd be mm. interesting. Brilliant. Okay, mate. Good guest hunting. I very good much guest. enjoyed that. Was that was very good. Yeah, I'm going to have to go and thank Lucy now for that. That was very nice. Yeah, and it's true. She has got a lovely cadence in the way she rides the bike. <laughs> well done, Lucy. <laughs> Guys, go to the show notes and you can see Robert's books are on there. I was, mm-hmm. I've been ordering away while we've been... Uh, listening to him you're ordering whilst whilst yeah. we're podcasting you they're, they're, ordering. <laughs> they're downloading onto my kindle as we speak uh, i'm actually really excited to get reading on them i think i might next the book i'm on now and go straight to it um so guys head into the show links uh, show notes and you'll find the link in there and then you'll also find a link to rate and review the show if you would be so kind whatever platform you listen to it on it takes you literally five seconds but it actually means a hell of a lot to us in terms of podcast currency um or an, if you also have time to just share it to a mate, then please do. If you share this one and tell them it's a running podcast, they might get a bit confused because um, it's mainly around climbing and, and motivation. But you can share maybe last week's, which is with Kyle Evans, who has built an incredible running community down in Cape Town. The week before that was Keith Russell talking about how he managed to run for four days straight, uh, literally nonstop four days straight, which is also incredible. Uh, we've had on protein experts. We've had on training in the heat, which might be quite useful for you right now if you're living out here in uh, in Dubai. Well, mate, we just I looked down our list of guests and we have had on some incredible yeah. people. And if if you know somebody or you see somebody online or you know of somebody that you want us to try and talk to, tell us and we will quite happily message them and reach out. And that's what happened with Rob today. That's what happened with Kyle last week. I was running somebody mentioned kyle said oh i wonder what he's up to now and i thought i don't know i'm gonna message him and try and get him on and that's how it happened really really easy so please anyone you want on let us know and we'll get them on beautiful we'll be back next week we will until then goodbye i thought you were <laughs> gonna say uh, one of your slogans right but just slogan. goodbye <laughs> you're gonna make one up <laughs> Till then, run strong. Yeah. Safe climbing. Safe climbing. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.